On today's special edition of Foreign Policy, I read my latest Washington Times column, co-authored with my colleague, FDD Senior Vice President Toby Dershowitz. And then Toby and I discuss Alberto Nisman, the intrepid Argentine prosecutor who spent years revealing the truth behind the worst terrorist attack in his country's history and who paid with his life. Toby, who knew Alberto well, talks about him, the evidence he produced, and whether Argentines will act on that evidence or surrender to terrorists and murderers. I'm Cliff May, and you're listening to Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. Crimes without punishment in Argentina. Argentines need to decide whether to pursue justice or surrender to terrorists by Clifford May and Toby Dershowitz. For more than a decade, Alberto Nisman had been investigating the worst terrorist attack ever committed on Argentine soil, the 1994 bombing of the EMEA Jewish Community Center in Buenos Aires. Eighty-five people were killed and hundreds injured. Four years ago this week, the federal prosecutor was putting the finishing touches on a report that would accuse then-President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner and a dozen others of helping cover up the Islamic Republic of Iran's responsibility for the attack. On January 18th, the day before he was to present that report to Argentina's Congress, Mr. Nisman was found dead in the bathroom of his locked 13th floor apartment. A 22 caliber bullet had been fired at close range into his head. Mrs. Kirchner initially called his death a suicide, even though his fingerprints were not found on the Bursa pistol left close to his body and there was no gunpowder residue on his hands. Just over a year ago, however, an investigation by 28 forensic experts and law enforcement officials conclusively determined that he did not kill himself. In fact, they were able to deduce that two people had roughed him up, sedated him, and then shot him. Who were those people, and from whom were they taking orders? Argentines attempting to answer such questions placed themselves in danger. Late last month, federal judge Sandra Arroyo Salgado, who also is Mr. Nisman's former wife and the mother of their two daughters, withdrew from formal involvement in the investigation. The reason? Ongoing threats, the need to guarantee the protection and safety of the family, as she phrased it in a written statement. Mr. Nisman used wiretap conversations to build his case against Mrs. Kirchner. Among them was one concerning an ally, former intelligence officer Antonio Stiuso. Mrs. Kirchner says on tape, we have to kill him. Her defenders claim she did not intend to be taken literally. Mr. Stiuso, unconvinced, subsequently fled the country with his family. In September 2017, former Argentine ambassador to Syria, Roberto Ahuad revealed in testimony that Foreign Minister Hector Timmerman 
had visited Syria in January 2011 to finalize an agreement with Iran at a meeting hosted by Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad. A message sent to Mr. Ahuad asked, when are you committing suicide? Another warned, beware of an induced suicide. And Eduardo Tayano, head prosecutor investigating Nisman's murder, has received messages threatening to do to him and his son what was done to Mr. Nisman. Nevertheless, Mr. Tayano is continuing to investigate, focusing most immediately on the calls made over more than 150 phone lines, many of them reportedly assigned to intelligence agents, on the day Mr. Nisman's body was found. Long before implicating Argentine officials in a conspiracy, Mr. Nisman had found solid evidence that officials of the Islamic Republic of Iran planned and financed the EMEA bombing, and that Hezbollah, its terrorist proxy, carried it out. Mohsen Rabbani became cultural attache at the Islamic Republic's embassy in Buenos Aires just months before the EMEA bombing. In 1997, after Argentine officials issued an arrest warrant for him and Interpol, a red notice, which is a, a request to locate and provisionally arrest an individual pending extradition, he managed to return to Tehran. Red notices for four other Iranian officials in connection with the bombing remain in place to this day. Evidence points also to Hezbollah's responsibility for the bombing of the Israeli embassy in Buenos Aires in 1992, in which 29 people were killed and more than 200 injured. Argentine authorities charged Imad Magnia, the infamous senior Hezbollah operative, who also had been the mastermind behind the bombing of the U.S. Marine barracks in Beirut in 1983. He was killed in Damascus in 2008 in what may have been a joint Israeli-U.S. operation. The most likely motive for the EMEA attack, Iran's rulers, in their own special way, were conveying displeasure over the Argentine government's suspension of nuclear cooperation. As for the cover-up, Mr. Nisman believed a deal was in the works to lift the red notices in exchange for oil. Tehran and Hezbollah have long been seeking influence and power in Latin America not least through illicit means. As far back as 2004, the U.S. Department of the Treasury designated Assad Ahmad Barakat, a Lebanese-born citizen of Paraguay, as a terrorist and Hezbollah financier. He and other members of his family are believed to have provided logistical support for both the EMEA and the embassy bombings. Recently, Argentina froze the assets of 14 members of the Barakat clan. That sent a message that Mauricio Macri, elected Argentina's president in 2015, is unwilling to give Hezbollah free reign. A few weeks ago, the U.S. Department of State hosted a ministerial meeting with key Latin American officials that sent another message. Hezbollah operatives in the Western Hemisphere must be thwarted. That said, it remains to be seen whether either Hezbollah or the Islamic Republic ever will be held to account for the terrorist attacks of 1992 and 1994 and whether anyone will be brought to justice for attempting to cover their tracks and for the murder of the investigator who followed the facts wherever they led him. That investigator, just days before he was assassinated, said prophetically, with Nisman around or not, the evidence is there. Argentines now face a choice to act on that evidence or to surrender to terrorists and murderers. To put it another way, they must decide what kind of nation Argentina is and what kind of nation Argentina will become. So I'm sitting here with my co-author, Toby Dershowitz, 
Um, Toby, people at FDD knew Alberto, but you knew him best of all. Tell us a little bit about what kind of man he was. What, what, what was he like? First of all, Cliff, he was very dogged. He was very determined. Um, and most of all, he was very focused. He was involved in investigating the AMIA bombing for a full decade. Uh, and and that showed a kind of determination. He was determined, as he said to me on numerous occasions, to really take the evidence wherever it led. But if I had to sum him up in one word, it would be focused, I guess a second word, dogged. And, and, and I, I believe you and, and others were worried for, for him. You kind of knew where he was going with this investigation. You had some inkling that he was – Finding evidence of a, of a cover-up of the uh, involvement of the Islamic regime in, in Tehran. This, this was this was not a total surprise to you. So you saw the danger out there, and he did too. He did, and there were a couple of occasions where he let me know about the threats that he was facing. Um, they were he filed these threats um, with the authorities in Argentina. Um, he knew what he was getting into, and yet he was still determined. And that was really the most remarkable thing about him that I remember. He didn't shy away from it. Um, that isn't the case with everybody in Argentina. There are so many other cases where prosecutors, judges, witnesses, and others face these dangers, and some of them walk away from it. Um, I can't blame them, but I just want to say Alberto knew the risks, and he pursued them nonetheless. And by the way, one of the th we didn't have room in the column to talk about this, but knowing the risks and everybody re recognizing that he was in dangerous territory, he did have bodyguards. He did have security. Uh, you might just talk a little bit about that because he had that, but it, it didn't succeed, obviously. He had about a dozen security guards surrounding his apartment. Of course, people who remember the case uh, four years ago to the day today um, know that they disappeared. They were nowhere to be found. Where were they on that day when he was, in fact, murdered? One of the reports that is is due out in the coming uh, period deals exactly with that. What happened to those guards? Where are they? So that's one of the things that will come up in the coming weeks that uh, is next in the case. I want to pick up on that quote that we have from, from, from Alberto Nisman, where he says, whether Nisman is around or not, the evidence is there. C can you elaborate on, on, on what he meant by that? What does that evidence show and, and what, is, what is or is not being done with that evidence since his death? Well, first of all, I mean, that is just so prophetic. He understood, A, the risks to his life, but he also understood that he didn't want the case to be dependent on whether or not he was alive or not. And so he he was very clever. He put the evidence out there and he was basically saying to the world, you know what, whether or not I'm here, you need to pursue justice. You need to pursue the case. Here is the evidence. And you've been doing a lot of work over the years since to keep this in the in public view and to uh, accumulate new evidence. There's a website that you've created called albertoniesman.org. Tell us a little bit about what's on that website. Sure, Cliff. You know, whoever killed Niesman, they wanted to bury the body of evidence that he was collecting. And so our goal was really to have a repository of the most important core and original documents associated with the case all in one place. 
And so there are as many original documents as possible, major reports that Nisman filed with the courts. Uh, some of them were 300 pages, 500 pages, 700 pages. They are in English and in Spanish wherever possible. Um, there's information about Interpol, red notices, actions that our own Congress has taken and, and, and the like. There's some of the audio recordings as well, which is very interesting. These are some of the audio recordings that he used to uncover uh, the plot to cover up um, Iran's role um, in in the original AMIA. And the audience is sort of law enforcement, policymakers, and most certainly the media, um, really whoever wanted to take a look at original documents and, and analyses. You know, the fact that Nisman was a, a dogged investigator, the fact that he collected all this information, the fact that he was murdered, the fact that his murderers have so far gotten away with it, I would imagine that would have an influence uh, on, on law and order generally in Argentina because people now know, the criminal elements know, the terrorist elements who are there know, you can get away with it. Therefore, well, therefore what? Argentina has to make a decision, as you said in the opening to this, they have to make a decision about what kind of country they want to be. Uh, this is a problem throughout Argentina. Um, I have to say, um, I'm optimistic about this particular case because it has uh, investigators and prosecutors that are determined to get to the end of this and get to justice. Notwithstanding, for example, to um, Eduardo Tayano, notwithstanding the threats against his life, notwithstanding Sandra Arroyo Salgado's uh, withdrawal from the case, it's not dependent on her, and I certainly don't blame her. But Tayano, notwithstanding the threats to his life, is determined to continue the investigation and to find who killed Nisman, and hopefully also to finally hold accountable um, those who attacked and, and bombed the AMIA. You know, I can imagine someone reading our column or, or listening to this podcast and saying, okay, man, you know, the bombing of the Israeli embassy was 1992. The EMEA bombing was 1994. This is all ancient history. What they may not realize is that the Islamic Republic of Iran has continued to back acts of terrorism and assassinations and assassination plots all the years since. Now, one that comes to mind, of course, 2011, there was a plot to blow up the Saudi ambassador in an Italian restaurant here in Washington, D.C. That was foiled. Um, but there have been at least three attempts and some several uh, successful assassinations that have taken place on European soil in very recent years. The Dutch government recently responded to one of those with sanctions. Uh, what I'm saying, I guess, uh, is that the Islamic Republic of Iran is very much involved in assassinations and acts of terrorism to this day. I think in part because there have been so few repercussions for past acts of terrorism. I'd say two things, Cliff. You're exactly right. The State Department issued a report on this not too long ago, which details um, Iran's assassination attempts and bombings and, and, and whatnot. It's a very, very worthwhile uh, document to take a look at. The second thing is, if Europe and, and others don't hold Iran accountable for this, it will be at their peril. I think there's no other way to, to put it. Um, and it will just 
it will not serve Iran well either. Uh, they will not be permitted to be welcomed back into the community of nations in a real significant uh, way as one hope they would be, but they, that isn't going to happen until they um, really change course. Um, will that happen? I don't know. The Europeans, they're wrapping Iran's knuckles over assassinations of uh, and attempted uh, assassinations and terrorist attacks against uh, Iranian dissidents in Europe, but they're not doing enough to really make uh, the, the the ruling mullahs feel like we have to change our course. This is this is not good. There's still too many governments in Europe who are trying very hard to do business and they think that through commerce they can make a normal and more moderate nation out of Iran. They're not really holding Iran to account for its behavior. That's that's my view. You, you're welcome to disagree if you do. I, I wish I did, but I don't. I think there's so much more to be done. People listening to this may think, boy, I'd like to do something to help. I know it's not easy to do something to help, but I'm going to ask you, what is there that listeners uh, and, and readers might be able to to do about about this case, these cases, actually? Sure. Well, let's start with where we just ended, you know, the last point, Cliff, which was in Europe. Uh, there are cases going on in Europe today um, associated with the bombings and, and assassinations that have been taking place throughout Europe. The first thing is be in touch with legislators. Americans can reach out to Europeans, uh, and certainly Europeans have have a responsibility to ensure their governments are uh, not, as you say, giving a uh, wrapping on the knuckles to Iran. They they need to take this seriously. To continue to tell this particular story, the story of the Amia, you know, don't let it die until those who are responsible are held to account in courts of law. Uh, something else we we talked briefly about in the piece, which is the red notices. Well, we need to insist the red notices are enforced. Uh, there have been lapses, frankly speaking. Some of the people who have the red notices have been able to fly into other countries um, with with impunity. By holding them accountable and by enforcing the red notices, you know, this signals to Iran and Hezbollah that even though time may pass, they will be held to account. I'll just mention one thing. Uh, six months ago, um, as we say in our article, the Barakat clan, uh, those who were um, involved in the logistical support for the Amia bombing and the bombing of the Israeli embassy in 1992 had their assets frozen and some members were arrested, again, some 25 years later. I think that sent a really important um, message to Hezbollah and to Iran. And kudos both to Argentina and the other countries involved in this and kudos to our State Department. They have not let up on this. In particular, the Office of Counterterrorism at the State Department has been working very close with our allies. They need to continue to do this and they need to um, hear from others how important uh, this is, even 25 years later. Well, the embassy bombing, the EMEA bombing, the murder of Alberto Nisman, the cover-up that followed, none of these are cold cases. None of these are solved and justice hasn't been brought. I know you'll be continuing to follow all this very intensively, writing about it and talking about it, not least, I hope, again with you here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If we could be doing better, tell us. 
send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. You can also tweet us at foreignpodicy on Twitter. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Podicy.